Amen. Well, happy Easter. And good morning again. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at GCFL. I want to welcome you, especially if perhaps you are worshiping with us maybe for the first time today. Uh, welcome. Glad that you are here. Also want to welcome those who are sitting in Fellowship Hall. There are uh, several there and uh, trust that the Lord will minister to your heart there as he is ministering uh, to ours here. GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And as Pastor Paul mentioned, what a great joy and blessing we have on a Sunday such as this, Easter Sunday, to gather together to worship uh, the risen and resurrected Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John. The words will also be up on screen behind me. John chapter 20. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book uh, in the New Testament. John chapter 20, as we look at one of the resurrection accounts here in the gospel. John chapter 20, and I'll read again verses 1 through 10. If you're able to, would you stand as I read God's word for us this morning? John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in there, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray now together with the risen Christ that you would send your spirit to anoint the preaching of your word, illumine this word which your spirit has inspired. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear that we might be changed. Correct us, reprove us, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, make us competent for every good work. And we praise you, O oh God, that even as we gather now to celebrate Christ our Savior, we, we recognize that all over the world, in every corner of this planet, people have, have already done that today. And so what a great joy and privilege for us to be able to do this in our day, in this time, in this place. Be pleased, I pray, to pour out your spirit upon us, for we are needy people. We are in great need. Have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The entire Christian faith rests on one historically verifiable point. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul certainly thought so. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
In other words, if Jesus is not alive, there are two very negative consequences for all of us here today. Our faith is worthless, and yes, we are all still dead in our sins. So everything in the Christian faith rests on the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he is alive. And that's why church historian Philip Schaeff could write, the resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. So which is it? Is the resurrection of Jesus the the greatest miracle in the history of the world? Or is it yet another one of the more profound delusions that the world has ever known? John, the disciple who wrote this gospel that we are looking at here, well, he was firmly convinced of the former. In fact, his very purpose for writing everything that he wrote in the book of John, his very purpose for reporting the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he gives us in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, here's why, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So friends, belief in the resurrection of Jesus leads to life, eternal life. And so nothing less than eternal life is at stake on a morning such as this, Easter Sunday. And I think that is why in this room, and I trust in Fellowship Hall, I think that is why there is a palpable sense of joy. Joy not because spring might finally be here, maybe, please, Lord. Joy not because you you get to wear, which by the way, you're all looking very good in your Easter Sunday best. That's not really why we're all joyful. Joy not because of the plans you might have after this service, maybe getting together with family and friends and eating some good food. No, there's a a palpable sense of joy in this place for one primary reason. Jesus Christ is risen. That's the meaning of Easter for everyone, for everyone here, and that's the meaning of Easter for everyone who is not here. So Christians for millennia now, two millennia now, believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is in fact the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen. And so given that, I want to be as clear as I can be on a Sunday like this. I, obviously, I want to be clear every Sunday when I get up here. But particularly on this Sunday, I want to be clear about what we're seeing here and what we're reading in John chapter 20. And so if perhaps you forget everything else about this day, I'll I'll trust, I'll pray that the Lord would bring this to your mind as you have need of it, and here it is. Easter changes people forever. The resurrection of Jesus changes lives. Because the resurrection of Jesus is, in fact, for you. It's for everybody. And we have three examples here in our text in John chapter 20 that shows us exactly that. The reality of the resurrection of Jesus changed these people's lives. The three people that we encounter here in our text, they're not heroic people by any stretch. They're not even spiritually impressive people. 
They're about as real as you can get. In fact, they're about as human as you can get. As John records it, we meet here in our text an unlikely woman, an unworthy man, and an uninformed disciple. And yet all three of them are changed. They're transformed precisely because Jesus is alive, because he's risen. Let's meet Mary. She's the first one here. She's a a very unlikely woman. She's actually the first to see the empty tomb. Now, Mary actually has the privilege here of a two-part visit. Verse 1, she comes to the tomb while it's still very dark, and then she runs back a little while later with Peter and John. But on that first visit, Mary is there when it is darkest, when there is no light as of yet. Now, Mary gets darkness. She understands darkness for reasons that we'll look at in just a moment. But in the darkness, she sees the stone is rolled away, and I think Mary does what probably many of us would do. She's like, whoa, I gotta gotta go find somebody. I gotta go tell Peter and John, which is exactly what she does. Verse two, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary speculates a little bit here. She she theorizes that, well, perhaps perhaps Jesus' enemies have taken his body somewhere. Maybe they've dishonored his body in some way. But this whole scene is not adding up for Mary because she was present at the trial of Jesus. She heard the death sentence levied on him. She saw him being crucified on a cross. She saw him hanging on a cross. She saw him die. There was no life in him. She saw him buried in a tomb. She also saw a large two-ton stone that was rolled in front of the tomb and sealed, which, by the way, would take 10 very, very strong men to, to try and move that stone, even just a few inches, and yet Mary sees that it's completely rolled away, So Mary is, she's not expecting a resurrection at all on this very dark morning. She's not expecting to be an eyewitness to the greatest event in the history of the world. In fact, Mary's not expecting much of anything good to happen to her on this day. She's a a very unlikely candidate for two main reasons. First, she's a woman. And by virtue of her gender in the first century, No woman's testimony could be allowed in a court of law. So the the testimony of a woman was considered unreliable. It was considered worthless. There's a a second century critic of Christianity. His name's Celsus. He actually mocked the idea of Mary as a legitimate alleged resurrection witness. He referred to her as a hysterical female, deluded by sorcery. So if you were going to make up a story, but you, you wanted it, you needed it to sound credible... Well, you certainly would not choose a woman to be the first public witness to it. Yet, here's Mary, entrusted with the most crucial testimony that the world would ever hear. She's a woman. Second, Luke 8, in a companion text, tells us, Luke 8, chapter uh, verse 2, tells us that there were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and among these was Mary, called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out. So understand, friends, this Mary at one point was demon-possessed. 
translation, she was full of evil. So she has a past, and it's not a very good past. Yes, Jesus had dramatically delivered her from those demons, and she began to follow him and take those really baby steps as a disciple, but she still lived with the stigma of being, oh, that woman. Oh, don't think for a moment that Mary couldn't show her face in public without hearing the whispers and the jeers and the shame. Oh, that's, that's that evil woman. You don't want anything to do with her. And that sense of shame doesn't just evaporate. Her sense of just self-consciousness either. That'd be a burden for any of us to carry. Add to that, as we round out the picture here of Mary, that she's from the city of Magdala, which in the first century had kind of a sketchy reputation. I'll leave it to your imagination to figure out what city would that be like here in our area. I'm not even going to go there. But it's the kind of place where if you're from there, you don't really advertise. You don't really want people to know you're from there. So Mary here is, this, is a very unlikely woman to be at the scene of the greatest event in the history of the world. Yet she is there. With her, we find an unworthy man at the tomb. This unworthy man has a name. His name is Peter. And what happens at this first Easter morning? Well, it changes Peter too. If you've been with us for the last, well, year in our series in the book of Mark, we've learned a ton of things about this Peter. And most of them negative. Peter's brash. Peter's impetuous. He speaks when he really should be silent. He blurts out grandiose statements, makes all kinds of commitments when we kind of think, Peter, you just, could you just bite your tongue just for a minute? But all those things pale in comparison to what we read just two chapters before our text here in what could only be described as for Peter the lowest moment in his life. John chapter 18, three times there, Peter denies Jesus. He, he rejects Jesus three times. On that first occasion, he's, a question is asked. Somebody says, aren't, aren't, you, aren't you that disciple of Jesus, Peter? And Peter says, no, that's not me. A bit later, around a fire, he's warming his hands. He's asked again. Somebody says, wait a minute, you, boy, you look real familiar. Didn't I see you with Jesus? Peter says, yeah, you got the wrong guy. It's not me. And finally, for a third time, Peter says, I don't know this Jesus that you are talking about. And at that point, as we read in Luke 22, verse 62, Peter runs away and he weeps bitterly. He's deeply grieved, full of guilt. His other shortcomings, foot and mouth, talking when he shouldn't, I mean, those, those sins can be forgiven, right? But this, turning your back on Jesus, rejecting him, denial, at this greatest hour of Jesus' life? I mean, how do you come back from that? Is there even a way back from that? So there really is no more unworthy man on the planet at this moment than Peter. And he knows it. And yet, Peter is also present at this early morning scene here in John chapter 20. Mary finds him, and John tells them what she has seen at verse 4, and we read that Peter and John are now in a foot race to get to the tomb, and John wins. So evidently, 
Peter's not just an unworthy sinner, he's also not a very fast runner. Now, we read that and we might think, why is that detail in there? Why does John describe this, this foot race? I mean, he, he's about to tell us of the, the most amazing news that the world has ever seen. Uh, John's about to say, look, um, I, I have news that will literally change the course of human history. The world will never be the same. But first, I just want you to know, I beat, I beat him in a foot race. Okay, John, noted. Excellent. Now, now, we're not told exactly why we have this detail in there, but, but I, actually, I think there, there's, there's two good reasons. Number one, I think it does speak to the, to the closeness, the friendship, the camaraderie between Peter and John. Both of these guys are key leaders, and they would be key leaders in this early fledgling church. We read about that in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. Uh, it, particularly in those passage, passages, both of them are preaching, and they're, they're, they're calling people to repent and believe. And both of them, in Acts 3 and 4, they get in trouble with the Sanhedrin. They're, they are together in Jerusalem. And all the way through the book of Acts, you see Peter and John in some very unique roles, but yet they're, uh, they're, they're unified, and, and they're at... They're, they're present for some of the, the, the most incredible events in this early life of the church. And so even though John got to the tomb first, there is also a hint of deep respect that John has for Peter, perhaps for Peter's preeminence. It's, it's likely that there was a significant age gap between the two. Church tradition it tells us that Peter uh, died many decades before John. And so if John lived to about A.D. 90, which that's kind of our best dating there, and this is AD, or 33 A.D., John is just a young man here. He's likely late teens, early 20s. He's a very young man. Peter is older. He's already got a wife, mother-in-law, family. He's probably 30 or 40 years older. So let's just be clear, this foot race, it's probably not really a fair foot race. It would be like me trying to beat my 10-year-old son. And that's just not going to happen. But I would talk like it would happen. But it wouldn't happen. But here's the second reason, and it, this reason is even more important, wh why I think we have this detail, kind of a strange detail about this foot race. It shows that John is an eyewitness of the things that actually took place. I mean, this is one of those details that you would not otherwise know and you wouldn't bother to report if you're just trying to make up a story. You're just trying to make it sound plausible. You're just trying to add some context or details. And so for John, far more than giving us some superfluous detail or just a fun fact about running, this is his way of saying, I was there. I, I saw this happen. It's true. Mary came and got us. We booked it back to the tomb, but I didn't go in first even though I got there. No, I'm not making this up. I'm actually telling the truth. And friends... When you are dealing with the truth, when you are telling the truth, the details really do matter. The details matter. When I was in seminary in Boston, one night my friends and I decided we would like to get some Krispy Kreme donuts. This was long before Krispy Kreme had spread to like all over the East Coast. Uh, and certainly, I think we have one in Spokane. And th again, this is long before Uber and DoorDash so we found out where the nearest Krispy Kreme donut shop was, and we went there. And we discovered that the nearest Krispy Kreme donut shop to Boston was in downtown New York City. And so six of us piled into a Toyota 4Runner, and we drove four and a half hours to the nearest Krispy Kreme donut shop in Manhattan. 
And we got there right before it closed, and we walked out with a couple dozen donuts, and I think we probably had them eaten before we got back to the parking lot. And then we drove back to Boston, and we got there at like 3.30 in the morning, and I remember working on a New Testament paper that was due at 8 a.m. It wasn't a good paper. <laughs> but these are the things you do when you're learning to be an adult. But later that day, that same day, my friend Tracy and I were going to a ministry function, and we were in the car traveling together, and I, I, I told her about this experience. I told her, yeah, we piled in, we got Krispy Kreme donuts, it was great. And she did not believe me. And, and the more that she didn't believe me, the more I tried to explain it again and say, well, no, Tracy, this actually really happened. But she, she would not believe me. She kept saying, who drives from Boston to New York City for donuts? And that's a legitimate question. And I kept saying, well, we did. And so I pointed to the, you know, I think they gave out some coupons. Like, Tracy, look, here are the coupons. But that didn't do it. And then I think they, you know, gave us that little paper hat, you know, that you can wear. But, but she was still not convinced. It was only when I showed her, it was actually when I remembered that I actually had a receipt in my wallet. And it's only when I produced that receipt to Tracy that had the date, the time stamped, yep, 9.53, Tuesday night, New York City, that she would believe me, because I can't make that up. That's a detail that unless you are there, you can't manufacture that, you can't fabricate that. And that's what John is doing here in telling us what turned out to be the most infamous foot race in the history of the world. John was there, he knows, he has details, he's not making it up. When you are dealing with the truth, and when you are telling the truth, the details really do matter. And so again, at this scene, we have a very unlikely woman, Mary. We have a very unworthy man, Peter. And yes, we have John, evidently a young man and a fast runner. But he's also an uninformed disciple. John is the disciple. We know him as the disciple that Jesus loved. Again, he reaches the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. So John looks inside, but, but he doesn't go in the tomb. I think he does what I think most of us would probably do if you came to an open grave. You, you kind of peer in, you look around, something's not right, something's not adding up, this is weird, what is really going on? And John's not yet putting all the pieces together of what he's seeing, of what he's experiencing. He lacks understanding. He's just a bit confused. Had he, and frankly all the other disciples, really understood what was going on, well, he wouldn't have been there waiting. John didn't show up expecting anything but a dead body. Even though Jesus had explained it to John and the disciples several times, Jesus had said, and we've seen that in our studies in the book of Mark, Here's what's going to happen, guys. Pay attention. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer and die on the cross. And then I'm going to rise again three days from the dead. But, but John's not quite getting that. I think he's probably a lot like many of us. He knows the truth, but he's not understanding it completely. He, he sees, but, but yet he struggles to believe. And it's not until Peter actually arrives, presumably huffing and puffing, that John begins to get a little bit more clarity. Again, the details are important when you are telling the truth, when you're speaking the truth. 
Peter runs into the tomb, verses 6 through 7. We're not surprised at that at all, are we? Peter's not going to wait for anybody. He's, that's, that's Peter. And what does he see? He sees the linen cloth lying there, but even more, he sees the face cloth, which had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and something peculiar has happened here. That face cloth is actually folded up neatly by itself in another section. Now, let's just be honest here. It would actually be pretty easy to explain an empty tomb. Grave robbers. That's probably the easiest explanation. And there were certainly grave robbers in the first century, stealing bodies, destroying tombs. That was punishable by death, according to the Emperor Claudius. But, but here we have linen cloths and a face cloth, and that face cloth is folded up neatly. So, so no, this isn't the work of grave robbers. This is actually the hand of God. The body of Jesus was not snatched away by friend or foe. Grave robbers do not pay attention to laundry. It's the laundry here that actually really matters. To be completely accurate, Mary, Peter, and John, these first eyewitnesses on this incredibly historic, monumental day, well, they looked in the tomb, but they didn't find an empty tomb, right? There was no body, but they discovered linen cloths that had been used to wrap the body of Jesus that buried him. They found the face cloth, which had been wrapped around Jesus' head, folded neatly off to the side. It's like Jesus had just said, I won't be needing these anymore. So you can account for an empty tomb, but it's almost impossible to account for grave clothes that have been left behind and a face cloth that is just neatly folded in the corner. So John, this disciple that Jesus loves, wheels are turning. I think he's starting to put some of these pieces together of what he's experiencing, of what he's seeing. But I actually think at this point, John may be, as he peers into that empty tomb, as he sees the face cloth, I think he actually may be thinking of another man and even another resurrection. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11, there we read in John chapter 11, verse 44, that the man, that is Lazarus, had come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus came out of the grave literally in the bands of death his face wrapped in a cloth. Now, to be sure, that is a miracle. Lazarus was a miracle. Jesus called him forth from the grave. But it's Jesus who had to order those bands to be unbound and unwound from him. But that's not what happened here to Jesus. And John is starting to understand this. Nobody had to unbind the burial clothes of Jesus. So his resurrection here is of a wholly different character than Lazarus. Jesus comes forth with no need for grave clothes. Jesus says, I'm not going to be needing these anymore because death no longer has hold on me. I'm done with death. I've just conquered death, in fact. Lazarus would die again, but Jesus would not. And so that, that cloth neatly folded sitting there off to the side in the tomb is yet another silent witness to the vanquishing power of Jesus over our greatest enemy, death itself. And so what is John really beginning to understand here on this 
dark morning. There was a dead man in this tomb. But he's not dead anymore. He doesn't need those grave clothes. He's alive, just as he said he would, and death no longer has a hold on him anymore. John concludes, we read it in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. The word there for, for seeing means to, to see with comprehension, to see with clarity, to see with, with understanding. In other words, you, you see with your eyes wide open, maybe for the very first time. You see, you believe, and you are changed. You see, you believe, and suddenly your life has just changed and you're going in perhaps a different direction. Because of what you've just seen, you're never the same. And that's, in fact, what happened not just to John, but to Mary and to Peter as well. And that's really the good news of Easter. All three of these people we meet here in John chapter 20 were changed. So Easter clearly is not for the airbrushed, the heroic, or the spiritually enlightened people. John tells us here Easter's for the unlikely. It's for the unworthy. It's for the, the uninformed. It's actually for people exactly like us. It's for people like Mary Magdalene. She's actually honored as the first witness to the resurrection. She's at the tomb when it's dark. But isn't it interesting? It doesn't stay dark for long for Mary. It begins, her day begins in darkness, but very soon she begins to see the light because she has hope. There, there's a resurrection hope for her. That, if we keep reading here in John chapter 20, Mary, we find, is, is weeping outside the tomb, and Jesus himself comes to her. She actually thinks he's the gardener, and Jesus simply calls her by name. Mary. Mary. I mean, I wonder what that sounded like to Mary. And Scripture says she turns, which has got to be the greatest turn in the history of the world. She turns to him, and Jesus says to her, essentially, go, you've seen me. Go and tell people that I'm alive. John chapter 20, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to, isn't this interesting, to who? To the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So Mary, this this woman, unlikely woman, with several strikes against her, becomes the earliest missionary of the gospel. Having seen the risen Christ, Jesus sends her out to tell his own disciples. Mary has news for them. She's seen the risen Christ, and she's changed. That's actually what happens when ordinary, even unlikely people encounter the risen and resurrected Christ. You can never be the same. He changes you. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you're sitting here thinking, I, I, I don't think I'm a very likely person to be changed by Jesus. Maybe at one point in my life I was, but not anymore. Too much history, pain, suffering. Well, perhaps think again. That's kind of what Easter is all about, in fact. And maybe you're not even sure why you're here this morning. I can assure you, and for those sitting in Fellowship Hall, you are not here by accident. You're not. And perhaps the great need in your life this morning is simply to hear the voice of the risen and resurrected Jesus calling your name. 
follow me. Come to me. Trust me. I have defeated death. Jesus clearly has, he clearly has a soft spot for unlikely people. Some who are sometimes very self-conscious people as we are. So Easter changes Mary. Easter also changes people like Peter. He's an unworthy man. He's full of sin. Peter's sins were many, but in fact the mercy of Christ was so much more. In John chapter 21, we read then of this incredibly moving account where Jesus restores Peter. And he sends him out in ministry. He says, Peter, here's what I have for you. You thought you were done. Jesus says, we're just getting started. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Peter does exactly that. He becomes, again, this leader in the early church. The book of Acts bears this to be true. Peter, we find, is preaching the gospel. He's getting thrown in prison. He is proclaiming Jesus is alive. Uh, he's the true king. Repent and believe in him. And it's tradition has it that Peter chose to be martyred upside down on the cross because he did not consider himself worthy to be killed in the same way as his Savior. So Peter based his life on the fact that Jesus was alive. And that's why he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is Peter at the end of his life, and he's still talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He cannot help but still talk about that. You want a picture of a transformed man dead in his sins, to a living hope. Well, that's Peter. And Peter's transformed life still speaks to us today. Still does today. Typically, on most days, we have two main voices that are clamoring for our attention. And I get it if you have kids, you're saying, wait a minute, I have way way more voices. (laughs) Just go with me. (laughs) The first voice is our sins. Our sins are not silent. Our sins shout every day. You're not worthy. You, you, you're never going to figure it out. You should give up. It's not working. You are completely unworthy. And then we have the voice of Jesus. I mean, Easter is for sinners like us who recognize that we are absolutely unworthy apart from the grace and the mercy of a Savior And so that second voice, that most important voice that we need to hear every day is the voice of our Lord, the resurrected Lord, who's saying, remember the laundry. I died, I was buried in the tomb, and I didn't need the grave clothes anymore because I'm not there. Because I'm alive, I've defeated sin and death and Satan for you. If you would but turn and trust in me. Easter's for sinners. Jesus is for everyone. Remember the laundry. Your sins can be forgiven, every last one of them, if you turn to Christ. And that's why, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus really does mean that your past stays there. Your past does not determine your future because Jesus is the merciful, kind Savior who forgives So there is a, call it an Easter surprise of joy, 
The resurrection gives us new life because Easter gives us Jesus. So what's the way back for Peter? Well, he didn't figure that out on his own, did he? Peter didn't try and figure out, man, I've denied Jesus three times. What do I do now? No, his Savior came to him and said, Peter, I know you're unworthy, but trust me. Turn to me. Follow me. And that's what Jesus does for every last one of us. I totally hear that. Yeah. I think we're okay. Easter changes people like Mary, people like Peter, and people like John. It's it's, it's a nice sound, isn't it? I don't really want to compete with that. So I'm going to just, uh, I'm just going to do that. So happy Easter. Easter changes people, right? Easter changes people like John, this disciple, this follower of Jesus, Still not getting it completely, not understanding, but you know what? The empty tomb, the grave closed, that was in fact a turning point for John. He saw, he believed, and he obeyed. And the rest of his life bears that out. Perhaps the greatest proof of a changed life or a transformed life is in fact obedience. We seek to obey Jesus in everyday life. And John, in great humility here, would record in verse 9 that it was still a growing belief. John hadn't arrived. There's still much growth for him. I think that's why John is so encouraging, at least in in my mind. It's encouraging to all of us. There's still further growth needed. Yes, he saw with new eyes on this day, but that didn't mean that he was done growing as a disciple. For John, this really was a new beginning. Let's call it a fresh start. And maybe you are here this morning as a follower of Jesus, and that is the great need in your life this morning for a new beginning. For, for, for a bit of a fresh start. The, the gospel delivers that and the resurrection of Christ assures us of that. That today doesn't have to be like yesterday. In fact, in God's great kindness, He gives us that new beginning and fresh start every single day. So much He loves us. And the truth is, we need that. And you know why we need that? Because none of our sins die quickly. And our faith grows very slowly. And Jesus is so kind to meet us where we're at and to lead us where he wants us to go. Brothers and sisters, we serve a gracious and loving resurrected Savior who, yes, can sympathize in our weakness when we doubt, when we're confused, when we're trying to put the pieces of our life together and they're not fitting. The one thing we can do is to continue to draw near to him, to continue to go to him, especially in those times. Let's never forget, church, Because of Easter, the war between you and God is over. The hostility of your sin and unrighteousness in the sight of God has ended. So yes, we we don't have the inner resources to transform ourselves, to change ourselves, but Jesus, our risen Savior, breathes on us the very Holy Spirit of God. And He promises that, yes, by His Spirit, the more that we surrender Keep in step with the Spirit. In fact, the more that you can, I actually really can live lives that honor and glorify Him. So the cross and the empty tomb, friends, that's the only way that we can make sense of life. That's the only way that we can make sense of our world. 
That's the only way that we can make sense of our lives, to see our lives accurately. And at the center of the cross and the empty tomb, it's not another philosophy. It's not another system of rules, just a better system. At the very center of the cross and the empty tomb is a person, a risen and resurrected Lord who gives grace upon grace, yes, so that you and I will safely make it home. Did you know that every day on planet Earth, 174,000 people still turn to Jesus for salvation? Every day. 174,000 people in this very big planet turn to Christ for salvation of their sins. You don't think Jesus is still alive? You don't think he's moving and working and active and on his throne, <coughs> throne redeeming and removing scales from the eyes and softening hearts and bringing life out of death? He's doing that. So what about you? I mean, the resurrection of Jesus changes people forever. But really the question is, has he changed your life? And is Jesus, by his spirit, continuing to change your life. And if he is, if he has, well, praise God, you, in fact, have great reason, every reason this morning for joy and hope, and yes, every reason to tell others of that joy and hope that you have. We see, we believe, we're changed, and then we tell others. I mean, we cannot not tell people because we've been entrusted by, with, uh, from Almighty God with the best news on the planet. Jesus has overcome the power of death. Death could not hold him because the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid all the wages and he did not stay dead. Our king has defeated death. The Messiah has conquered his foes. Jesus is risen. And you and I are now entrusted by our risen king to go to the ends of the earth with this message of forgiveness of sins. Now, I highly doubt that any of us in this room this week are going to go to the ends of the earth. But it might be the end of our driveway to talk to our neighbor. And it might be the end of the factory floor or the end of our office. We're the only people on planet earth with this great news. No one else can claim forgiveness of sins, that the wrath of God has been fully satisfied, uh, and, and this atonement has been made complete at the cross of Christ. It, it is actually impossible to exaggerate the greatness of our calling. As Christians, we are members of the body of Christ. And so, yes, we stand alongside Mary and Peter and John, these first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and we're simply saying what they said. He is risen. So yes, Easter is for you. It's for me. It's for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Sins have been paid for. Hell has been defeated. The gates of paradise have been thrown wide open by our risen and resurrected Savior who reigns. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.